Hey everyone, John Kennedy here. Welcome back to Above Board with Canterpath. Today we have a very special guest. His name is Brian Ahern, and he is the Chief Influence Officer at Influence People. He is an international speaker, a coach, and a consultant. Uh, he specializes in applying the science of influence in everyday business situations. Uh, now, Brian is one of only a dozen individuals in the world who currently holds the Cialdini Method Certified Trainer designation. This designation was earned directly from Dr. Robert Cialdini, the most cited social psychologist in the world on the science of influence. Um, Brian has also written a number of books. Um, his first book called Influence People was named one of the top 100 influence books of all time by Book Authority. His second book, Persuasive Selling for Relationship-Driven Insurance Agents, was an Amazon new bestseller. Um, and his current new book is called The Influencer Secrets to Success and Happiness. In addition to all of this writing that Brian has done, um, his LinkedIn courses have also been viewed by more than a half a million people across the globe. Brian, welcome to the show, man. It's great to be here with you, John. I look forward to the conversation. It's just such a, it's such an impressive, like even as I was like typing up and working on the intro, I'm like, man, what hasn't this gentleman done? Uh, there's a lot of things. People are probably overly impressed with the few things I've done. I, I don't do a lot, but whatever I do, I try to do really, really well. Well, we're excited to have you on the show and, and talk a little bit about those things that you do do really, really well. And, um, you know, this topic came to mind uh, thanks to a mutual friend of ours, Ivan, Ivan Farber, who, who connected us. Uh, his, his podcast is Conversations About Conversations. And as I listened to y'all's episode, I thought, man, I'd love to talk to Brian. And this whole idea about the power of persuasion, but also what ethical persuasion means and how important that can be. Would you mind just maybe let's start there and shed a little bit of light on that? Okay. Well, let's start with defining persuasion because when sure. I ask people, I usually hear one of two things to change how somebody thinks or feels about something. And that might be a good first step, but quite often it's not enough and sometimes it's not necessary. Uh, for example, um, you know, for those out there listening, if you've raised kids, if you ever told your son or daughter, clean your room, you don't want them to look at you and say, that's a good idea, mom or dad. You want them to get in there and clean their room, right? You want to change their behavior. So when I talk about persuasion, I default to Aristotle's definition. And Aristotle said that persuasion was the art of getting somebody to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do if you didn't ask. Hmm. If you think about it, John, it's a great definition because someone's not doing what you want or need them to do. How you communicate may make all the difference between them doing it or not doing it. Now, if we change how they think or feel, that can be really positive because it may lead to a more lasting behavior change. But again, you know, when we're in a business situation, you don't want a client to go, wow, that, that's a great proposal. You want them to sign on the dotted line. You're mm -hmm. wanting to change behavior. So that's my focus on on what persuasion is. And so before we talk about ethical versus unethical, I'll pause there to see if that's stimulating any thoughts for you. No, that's great. I, I'd love I'd love to jump into ethical versus unethical because I think the term persuasion is has been probably mislabeled or misused because when I think of that term, I automatically think of sales tax tactics, something that's scammy, something that maybe I don't want, and someone's trying to convince me to do something I don't want to do. Yeah, and and it's unfortunate, and I think we do live in a time where people are skeptical of everything. There is hardly a profession or or anything that people are not skeptical of. So I get that they would maybe equate 
influence, persuasion with manipulation. But let me let me quickly share this story. If it weren't for the word manipulation, I would not be doing what I'm doing and you and I would not be having this conversation because it was more than 20 years ago when I came across the work of Dr. Robert Cialdini. A coworker gave me a video where he had presented at Stanford. I watched it and the light bulb came on. I was like, holy cow, what he's talking about here, this psychology, it's the underpinning of all selling. Second thing that stood out was it was all research-based. So I thought I can really get behind this with confidence. This isn't motivational hype. This is uh, research-based. And then the third thing that appealed to me was his stance on ethics. He was very clear about non-manipulative ways to move people to action. Well, I started using the video around the company, would show it. We would do some a uh, little bit of training, talk about it. But I signed up for Stanford's marketing. And one day, one of their marketing flyers came across my desk and boom, there was Cialdini's picture. And in bold letters at the top, it said bestseller. And right underneath it in bold letters, it said, call it influence, persuasion, or even manipulation. And I thought, I can't believe they actually use that word because he's so clear about non-manipulative ways. The lady who introduced him said he's going to talk to us about non-manipulative ways. So either the copywriter didn't watch the video or they just weren't a very good copywriter. But what I did in response to that, the, the what I like to say, the moral part of me thought this needs to be addressed. So I emailed Stanford and I basically said, I don't know anybody who is looking to become a good manipulator. And I certainly don't know anybody who wants to be manipulated. The word cannot be helping your sales, but it's probably really hurting. I never heard from Stanford, but sometime later, my phone rang at work and it was a representative of Dr. Cialdini's. And Chris had called to thank me on behalf of Dr. Cialdini. She said, your email has caused Stanford to change the marketing of our materials. And we wanted to say thank you. Wow. So I thought, wow, that's really cool. And as we had a conversation, she said, you know, if your company ever needs a guest speaker, uh, Dr. Cialdini travels the world. I said, I sit next to the woman who books our speakers and plans our events. Would you like to talk to her? And it was the summer of 2004. He was in Columbus, Ohio, several times to address the insurance agents that represented our company. And that is what kickstarted me to ultimately get certified by him and, and start my company and, and everything else blossomed from that. So I really want you and, and your listeners to know, I take this part about manipulation deadly seriously. It, it, it literally changed the trajectory of my life and my career. I've heard you talk about this on other shows and I've, I've followed you for quite some time now. And one of the conversations that you had was you actually started out in the in a career of sales and you didn't like it at first. Is that was that correct? And then if so, what was the thing that what was the light bulb moment for you that kind of turned it on to say like, oh, this can be if it's non manipulative and it's ethical, this can be good. Yeah, it wasn't. I started my career in the insurance industry as an underwriter, so I wasn't in direct sale, but but you're always dealing with that insurance agent and, and having to negotiate and and you get beat down pretty hard about price, price, price. And you start to think that's the only thing they really care about is price. Right. And so I, I really thought sales was a bunch of BS until around 1996, I think it was, somebody came into the company that I worked with, uh, John Petrucci, and he was a great salesman. And I started to really understand through him that, wow, 
the words we use and how we go about presenting our ideas can make a world of difference in terms of people saying yes or no. And so I started getting involved there. And then when I layered on top of that Cialdini's work and the research and everything, that's where it all really took off. But I started to understand that a good salesperson, somebody who's not just out to make a sale, but who genuinely is trying to help the customers that they serve, they can point out things that we're not going to necessarily get from looking at a website or reading an Amazon review. If we could get everything that we needed from those, then we don't need salespeople. But usually products or services are more complicated. And so we do need that person who can uh, filter out the questions that we have and start directing us in the right places. I, I had a bit of an aha moment myself. And this was so one of our, our business coaches is David DeSell, who you also recorded a podcast with, the Model FA podcast. And in the course of this conversation, you know, I think we kind of made the comment that I feel like sales is a bit of a dirty word, especially in my industry where, you know, you're 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 helping someone achieve financial success and financial freedom, however they define that. Mm -hmm. The problem in our industry is that can be the good thing is that can be done with a lot of different tools. The bad thing is sometimes, you know, you have someone who's just selling a product based on their own agenda and not for those ethical reasons. And, and something that he said to me really was my light bulb moment. And it was, it was to the effect that um, not only should it be a priority to share your message with as many people as you can, but you have a moral obligation to share that message and story to help as many as you can, because what if, someone that could have or would have uh, potentially worked with you didn't even hear about you or know about you. And, mm -hmm. and as a result of that, um, you know, they, they, you know, maybe did go or, or work with somebody that was more pushing their own agenda and didn't give them the advice that they actually needed. And it was for me, I was like, Oh, okay. Like a different way to look at this word sales. Cause I've always sort of shied away from that. Um, you know, and I would say it wasn't even until probably that conversation or the last few years, like I'd go, we'd go to a, you know, I'd go to a party and I didn't want, sometimes I didn't even want people to know what I did, Brian. Cause I, I was worried like, oh, man, they're going to, as soon as they hear financial planner, financial advisor, they're going to go, oh, this guy's going to try to sell me an insurance product. This guy's going to try to sell me something. So I would, I leaned so far away from it. And I, I don't know what it is about hearing it the right way at the right time when I received that message, but it was really influential for me. Well. Let me share a few things. First, uh, we'll get back to define what is manipulation versus being ethical. And then we'll talk about a principle that I think all but removes manipulation from this situation. When we talk about being an ethical influencer, there are three things that are key. The first is truthfulness. It's not enough to tell the truth. We never hide the truth. You know, it would be indefensible for me, John, if I were selling my home and you came here, looked at it, and in the basement, I've got a rug because I have a gym down there, and there's a crack in the basement. If I didn't tell you about that and you bought the house and moved the rug, you would not look at me as ethical. And if you said, why didn't you tell me about the crack, my, my saying, well, you didn't ask is not defensible. But an ethical person uh, doesn't hide the truth. So if I saw that you're walking around my home and you're really starting to, to think of yourself living here and I can tell you like it, I might say, John, um, I can see you really like my home. Before you go any further, I want to show something to you because I would never want you to think I'm hiding something. I move the rug. I say, you know, the rug is here because I've got my gym. There is a crack. It has never leaked. It has not been a problem. But I want to make sure that you know that up front you're starting to think this guy's pretty honest, right? And, and it is not turning you away from 
enjoying the house, but you might even enjoy it more because of my honesty. So we always tell the truth and we don't hide the truth. Um, the second thing that we do is we only use the principles that are relevant and natural to the situation. So I don't employ, you know, this, this one's so often used, scarcity, right? We want things more when we think they're rare or going away. And so many salespeople use a false scarcity. Hey, John, if you sign today, I can save you 15%. But if I have to come back tomorrow, I can't offer you this deal. And the truth is there's nothing scarce there. They're usually in a hard sell. Maybe they're closing 10 or 20% of their sales. They wouldn't come back for a guaranteed sale. That's garbage. Mm -hmm. They're trying to manipulate you to get you to sign today because they probably think if you talk to another salesperson, he or she's going to put the screws to you and you'll probably sign with them. So they're, they're putting you in a high pressure situation. The third thing that we do, and it goes to something that you were talking about earlier, when we are trying to ethically influence somebody, it is not a one-way transaction. Now, as a salesperson, you're going to get a commission, but it has to also be good for the other person. And I like to put it this way, good for you, good for me, then we're good to go. If we're both genuinely going to benefit from the transaction, then we can feel good about it. Now, you as a, as a customer, you might like to pay less. Me as a salesperson, I'd like to earn more in commission. But when we find that place where we're both uh, feeling like it's a good deal for us, and I've been truthful, and I haven't used any manipulative tactic with these principles, that's where I as a salesperson can look myself in the mirror and feel really good about how I'm interacting with people. Yeah, that's that's great. And I, what I'd like to touch on uh, next is what all of those key principles of influence are, because I know that there's, I believe, six, correct? There's seven you, now. There's seven now. And, and of the seven, I think what I heard you say just now or at least what came up for me and what you described is that, you know, you, you have to use your own awareness in the situation that you're in to determine, for example, using scarcity as your primary lead tactic of influence is just not going to work because you haven't developed, they don't know, like, and trust you yet. There's not reciprocity. And maybe I'm jumping the gun here on some of these key principles. Do you mind sharing some of those with us? Sure. The first principle that I always talk about is liking. And everybody mm -hmm. who's listening gets this. We prefer to say yes to those we know and like. Duh, we all get that, right? But the problem is a lot of salespeople, when they understand that, they try so hard to get a prospective client to like them that they end up coming across like a used car salesman. The way the principle works best is not that I try to get you, John, to like me. It's that I do everything I can to get to know and like you. And, and, and I can do that by looking for what we have in common and talking about that so that we're connecting and we're feeling similar. I can do that by offering genuine compliments, which certainly make you feel good, but they also make me think more highly of you. So actually, the principle's working as much on me as it is you. Now, here's why this is so important. When you start to see, hey, that guy, Brian, he really seems to like me. He really cares about me. That's what opens you up to what I might suggest. And, and the, the good news is, you know, I'm sure that you feel this way. I wouldn't manipulate my friends. I'm sure you wouldn't manipulate your friends, right? So we need to make friends out of each other. And when you begin to see how much I like and care for you and you're starting to respond, that's what removes manipulation from the situation because we won't manipulate our friends. That's amazing to think of it that way because when you said liking and, and how, I, how I thought of that was like, oh, well, you're, you just want someone to know, like, and trust you. 
but actually it's sort of a bit of a role reverse because if you genuinely enjoy that relationship you have with that person, there's now an authenticity that to that relationship. They see that you're genuine in, in, in who you are as Absolutely. a human. That's, and that's an incredible way to think of it. And it's just a shift of the mind. You, are, yeah. you can be doing the same things, but the mind shift is what makes a difference. It's like the, the kid whose coach says you got to throw up 100 free throws after practice, right? And some kids just throw it up and others take their time and they think about what they're doing. They get their mind involved. That's what I'm talking about here. Go into those situations with a thought process. I want to get to know and like the people that I work with. If nothing else, even if they say no, I will have enjoyed their interaction more than if I'm just going in and trying to get them to like me. Now, the key, what's really important about this then is when we move into reciprocity, that natural obligation that we have to give back when people first give to us. Well, my giving, because I've got to know and like you, John, my giving becomes more authentic. I've gotten to learn a little bit about you. So when I give you something, it's really tailored to you. It's not just a a pen with my logo kind of thing. It's something that, that has some meaning to you. And you're thinking like, wow, you know, that was nice. I mean, Brian really is paying attention. And I'm doing that because I like you, not because I'm going to pull this lever and get you to do what I want. I genuinely want to help you. And again, that's where when you get that sense that this is how the relationship is forming, you become more open to what I might share. And based on what you said, when you have a product that you know can help people, you want to make sure that they understand that because hopefully if they say yes, they're going to benefit for a long, long time with what you do in the financial services industry. Yeah, that was such a mental shift for me because again, I, you know, I, I really did shy away from it. I almost felt like, well, un unless or until someone seeks me out, maybe because they know what I do, and then that'll be the opportunity to kind of share what I do and how I can help somebody. But as time has gone on, and, and I think it's because, uh, you know, Matt, my business partner, and I, I mean, we have a deep passion for the work that we do. Mm -hmm. And so we're excited to, to share that message out. And, um, you know, I think that on the idea of liking and reciprocity, like one of the things that, that we really focus on is not only staying connected to our client community that we work with, but a lot of the stuff we do, whether it's the podcast or social media posts and, and things of that nature, what I've learned is, and I'm curious where this maybe falls in the, in the principles or what your thoughts here, but what I've learned is when someone is referred to work with somebody like a financial planner, I mean, that is a very intimate referral. That's like referring a doctor. You know, that mm -hmm. person's going to know a lot about your life financially, um, all the ups and downs, all the, you know, positive, negative experiences you've had, where things are financially. And when, when someone is referred to us, they already feel a little bit of a direct connection because they know, like, and trust the person that made that referral. I mean, that's, that's predominantly how we, how we grow and do business. But then what I've learned is when we started doing all of this, um, you know, social media and communication and getting our message out there, we'd have these introduction meetings and we would sort of, I guess the best way to describe it is accelerate the relationship faster or the connectivity mm -hmm. faster. And it took me about six months to understand why I felt that was happening. And I think what I came to was in one meeting in particular, she said, yeah, you know, I heard you mention that on a video that you did. And now I'm over here thinking, goodness gracious, no one's watching any of these videos. You know, it's, it's, it's my mom and my wife that are watching, you know, that are giving us likes online. And, and so to hear someone say that, what I realized was, wow, okay. So someone they know, like, and trust said, call, call John and Matt when the time is right for you. 
And then before they called, they started researching us a little bit mm-hmm. and they felt a deeper sense of maybe it was maybe it was my style, my communication, the office, the warmth of the, I, I don't know. But by the time they came in and actually spoke with me, they felt like they knew me. That was a very interesting phenomenon. Yeah. And that's the value of social media and putting out your thoughts on what you do and who you are and how you go about doing it. You never know who is going to see that. Um, Two things I would encourage you. One, when you ask for that referral and that person says, yeah, I'd be happy to do that, John. I would always give them a template of what they could put in that email. And so Mm -hmm. I would say to you, I'd say, you know, John, I uh, I, I so appreciate your willingness to give a referral. I don't want to make this more time consuming than it has to be. If I give you a couple of paragraphs about like my personal and professional background that you could massage, would that help you? And you'd probably be like, yeah, now I don't have to wonder what to say. And But now I know that when you refer me, the person who gets that is going to see information that is most relevant that will hopefully stimulate them to want to meet with me. Within that, I could even put uh, a link to a video so that, you know, when it's coming from you over to, let's say, Sarah, where it says, you know, Sarah, if you want to, quote, meet Brian before you meet him, just click on this link and you'll see a short video where he talks about, you know, X, Y, Z. So that would be a way to, to get more of those people thinking about you before they ever walk into the office. Um, and then the second thing, when you find out who those people are, I would certainly go out to uh, LinkedIn. And once they've reached out and to um, to have a meeting with you, I'd immediately, you know, hey, so happy that you're willing to do this. Uh, by the way, I just found you on LinkedIn and sent you a request to connect because now they're going to see your professional background, but you're going to lear- start learning about them too. So that hopefully they feel like, wow, this guy, John took some time to find out about me before I ever came in the office. Does that, uh, is that, would you define that as, as an example of reciprocity in the, in the key principles or is that something else do you think? Well, there's reciprocity in it because you are yeah. doing something that, that impresses or helps them by learning about those things. You are uh, potentially engaging liking because you may find out things you have in common or things you can genuinely compliment them on when they when you first meet. You're engaging the principle of authority by getting your expertise in front of them uh, via that person who's making the referral for you. So you're, you're starting to employ a lot of psychology that's moving this potential client in a very positive direction before they even meet you. Yeah, that's... That's so cool. The psychology behind developing a relationship I find so fascinating. And just just because the the OCD part of my brain wants to remember, and I'm taking notes as we're talking. So we have liking, we have reciprocity, and the next one is... Well, we'll, you, we'll just jump yeah. right into authority. So, so let's say you've built a good relationship with somebody and they're not really sure what to do. You know, They like you, but they need to know that you're an expert. And the principle of authority says that we typically defer to people that we see as having superior wisdom or expertise. Mm -hmm. Now, that means they've got to know about it. And and the cool thing is when you get the referral and you have that email that they can use, when your friend says something, they can can make you out to be the the greatest person who ever lived. And, And their friend fully receives that. But when you, John, try to kick the door down and say, let me tell you how great I am, that comes across like a boastful braggart. Right. Mm-hmm. So having a third party introduction is super helpful. But when somebody comes into your office and and, you know, being very thoughtful about what you're going to display, you know, we, we've all been in the dentist chair and we look over on the wall and we, and we see plaques and awards. Right. And we feel a little more confident that, hey, this guy or this lady knows what they're doing. When you have those things up in your office 
when you casually mention to somebody like, hey, John, uh, you know, I've been doing this now for a couple of decades. And what I found works really well for people at your stage of life, right? That, that, that I've done this for a couple of decades, that starts to give people confidence that if you've done this for a long time, you probably know what you're doing. So we have a lot of avenues to make sure people understand that we know what we're talking about beyond the fact that we have a financial planner title. Yeah, that's that's good to hear and good to think of it, that you can do it in such a way that isn't braggadocious on yourself about all the designations and things that you've done, because you do want to develop that sense of confidence. Like, in our industry, for example, you know, financial planner, financial advisor, there's a lot of different terms we go by. Um, there are a ton of different designations and licensing, and they're not all weighted equal. They're truly not. And so mm -hmm. that's a that's a good example of like, well, what does it mean to be a financial planner? Well, let me tell you what that means to me type of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I used to have people who on my business card, they'd say, you know, I know what a CPCU is because that was an industry designation when I was in insurance. But they're like, what is a CMCT? That was my opportunity to say, oh, well, I'm a Cialdini Method certified trainer. There's only a dozen of us in the world who uh, currently have the designation. Now, they may not know anything about it, but all of a sudden they're like, wow, there's only a dozen people in the world who, and, and it just was a natural lead in for me to talk a little bit more about what I do. So even things that might not seem relevant outside the industry because they may not know what all those letters are, they do catch people's attention. They do make people feel a little more confident that, hey, this guy or this lady with all these letters after their name, they must know what they're doing. And I guess to your point too, that is the advantage of, of social media in that you can have a lot of that information out there because it's kind of natural and normal to have that, let's say on your bio, on your LinkedIn page or, or wherever. And then in their own time, they can research too, if they want to, what that means to be, to have those designations, or in my case, to have a you know, a CFP designation and that type of thing. The, uh, the next principle that's also good for helping to get people beyond a state of uncertainty is uh, social proof. And, you know, you can be an expert at what you do, but then people are going to also wonder, well, who have you worked with, right? Mm -hmm. So social proof is about bringing into the conversation people who are similar to the person that you're trying to have some influence with. Because if you are talking to a client uh, let, let's say it's a, a client where husband and wife, they're mid to late 30s, couple young kids, you know, they got to start thinking about college. Uh, they still got a long way to go on the mortgage on the house and all of those things. You don't want to talk to them about your wealthy retired clients because they're like, okay, that, that's well and good. Maybe that's something to shoot for, but what do I do today? So social proof would be, hey, John, you know, the stage of life you're in, I'm in that stage of life too. In fact, a lot of my clients are are in this stage of life, you know, where you're paying down that mortgage and you're starting to think about saving for college and, and you're at, you know, right hitting that cusp of taking off in your career. And then you begin to talk about what you do with those clients. Well, naturally that someone's going to think, well, if it's working for them, it's probably going to work for me. So that's a way of bringing social proof in. We are we are pack animals and we typically feel safer when we're moving with the crowd. And, and you know, that you don't necessarily want to be the outlier when it comes to financial planning because, yeah, potential great rewards, but potential great risk. And somebody at that stage of life doesn't want to roll the dice when they've got all these other financial obligations competing for their resources. Yeah. Well, and I even think about it from my point of view as a consumer and, you know, like my, my sphere, my circle of friends, you know, that, that social proof, like it, I find that 
you know, I, I take to heart much more recommendation that they make, or if I see consistency in my group of friends of like, okay, well, you know, I'm doing, I'm trying to think of a good example off the top of my head. I can't right now, but if I see that they're doing something, it's like, okay, that gives me some confidence that, that, that probably makes sense. And we're, you know, I guess we're pack animals in that way. Like you said. There, there are certainly times where we don't want to follow the crowd, but the vast majority of the time, people do follow the crowd. That's why we read Amazon reviews. That's why when the traffic is backed up and, and cars are getting off the highway, you don't even have to tune in to figure out what's going on. You just know, I'm going to follow them. They look like they know what they're doing. So it happens far more often than people realize. So um, true. So, so two other principles that come into play after that. Um, we've got good relationship. People aren't unsure what to do. They're just not taking the action that we need them to do. And mm -hmm. so we talk about the principle of consistency, um, which is not about like your personal consistency, John. It's about the consistency of the other person, because mm -hmm. most people act in accord with how they think and believe. What have they said? What have they done in the past? How have they behaved? If we can learn that about people, and we can align what we're asking with what they already think, feel, believe, how they already act, then it becomes very easy for them to go along with what we're proposing because it's just natural for people to, to be consistent in who they are and what they say and what they do. What's really tough is when you are trying to take people way outside their comfort zone, get them to do things they've not done before, that becomes a, a really big challenge. So I always tell people that, you know, when you're employing the principle of liking and you're finding out, you know, things you can compliment, the things that you have in common, that starts to come into play with consistency because hmm. now I know a little more about you, John. I know things that you've said, what you believe, things you've done, I've learned online or I've learned in our one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations. And I will work very hard to make sure that what I'm proposing aligns with who you already are. Do you get, I, I'm, I'm curious because as I'm hearing all this stuff, I'm like, man, these are all such powerful tools and, and good, um, you know, shifts of the, of the mindset and how to, how to do this type of thing. Do you get frustrated when you see someone misuse their, their influence or all of this useful information? Because certainly it happens like this, this information in the power of the, in the wrong hands is, is obviously, it has to be a frustrating situation. I'm sure you've seen that. Well, it's, there's a difference between I think um, misusing it because you don't fully understand it. And, and that mm -hmm. just means, you know, working with somebody to correct it versus somebody who is using it um, just as a means of gain. In other words, you can use these principles and you can use them unethically. Mm -hmm. um, when I talk about these principles, I always tell people they're neither good nor bad. They simply describe how people typically think and behave how we use that reveals something about us. And, and going back mm -hmm. to Aristotle, he said, character may almost be called the most effective means of persuasion. We don't want to uh, have our integrity impugned because we are doing something that someone looks at and says, that's not right. You know, you're manipulating me. You're, you're hard selling me. Um, but we don't have to do that. When you really start understanding these principles and you're building some relationship and you're staying in touch with people. I always like to tell people I am patiently persistent. You know, once I've made contact with somebody, I don't have to close a sale right away. I want them to really get to know who I am and what I do so that when the time is right and they bring me in, it's a home run. 
because they they didn't just want to fill a slot, but they knew what I was going to do for their company or their association. And I think everybody should take that tact of being just patiently persistent. Try to build relationship. Let them get to know you. Get to know them. And once your pipeline is full, all of it starts paying dividends. I also think selfishly, like from from you know your perspective, or I'm I'm talking, I guess, in mine that that patiently persistent mentality allows the relationship to to develop and evolve mm-hmm. um, to a maturity point where it you know there, eventually there may be an inflection point where they've developed that no like and trust you factor and they've had the pain point financially where it now makes sense to let's say hire someone or or make a change from their current advisor whatever the case may be in my world but i think that that getting to know you build up period is so helpful because i mean at the end of the day you know all like my entire career as is yours is is built upon relationships and you know there are the majority, vast majority of our clients, like we're, we're very fortunate that we serve people that we love working with. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's where the passion and enthusiasm can shine through because I like working with these people. It's exciting for me to help them make a financial shift or to see, to watch them on their journey and accomplish their goals. I love that. I'm enthused mm-hmm. by it. And I want to see these people win because they've, a lot of cases, these, you know, our clients feel like family to us. And, and so I think that being patiently persistent allows it from, from your point of view. Cause uh, yes, of course, everybody wants to close the sale fast and, you know, make, earn a commission or earn money and move on. I get that. But that actually allows you to genuinely feel vested in the, in, in their interest in their, in the relationship that you have with them too. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I will give you a good example of being patiently persistent. Um, I joked with you the other day when you emailed and said, Hey, I know you're traveling. We're still good for the podcast. And I jokingly said, I'm in your hometown, Washington, D.C. Yeah. That opportunity came about because I think it was four years ago when I first made contact with the organization. I did uh, a little um, webinar for them, but I really hadn't heard from them for and for quite a long time. I was reaching out by phone, text, email to two individuals, and I almost threw the towel in. I mean, towards the end of last year, I was like, screw it. I'm just, I'm not going to keep following up. I'm not hearing from them at all. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to take this as a challenge. I'm going to dig my heels in and and I will stay in touch until they tell me to go away. Now, when I say stay in touch, it's like once a quarter. I'm not emailing them every week or every other week. Um, But then early January, somebody from the organization reached out and said, hey, we're going to have a meeting. We're going to have HR leaders in. They want to learn about influence. Are you available? So boom, I got my opportunity. And I wouldn't have gotten it if I hadn't stayed in touch. It was that rep- that repetition of, you know, w- what I'm doing, you know, the, seeing Brian connecting the name with influence. And then the opportunity came up. HR professionals wanted to learn about how to influence people within their organization to move their agendas forward. And, and it was a hit. That's a cool story. I feel the same way about, um, you know, being named John F. Kennedy and and searching for a Jackie so we could be John and Jackie Kennedy. You know, it wasn't until senior year of college that it was a hit and we met and we made it happen. So <laughs> yeah, just, what, don't, um, just don't get a Maryland. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. And, and a lot of people, you know, joke with us. They're like, man, you didn't name your kids, John, John and, and Carolyn. And we're like, nope, nope. We, we decided to go a different path. Um, the fortune of those Kennedys did not work out so well. So we're trying to blaze a different kind of trail for, Good for you. Uh, the new 
generation of Kennedys. What is, I believe there, we're missing one key principle. Is there one left? Well, we, we talked a little about scarcity earlier and how that yeah, can motivate yeah. people to action. But the other principle is called unity. And Robert Cialdini came out with that in, I think it was 2016 when his book Persuasion came out. And, and people asked him, like, for decades, you've defined these six principles. Why all of a sudden is there a seventh? And he said it was always there, but it was just kind of lurking beneath the surface. And so he really didn't see it or appreciate it for what it was. Unity is about shared identity. It goes much deeper than mere liking, where we have things in common or, I, or genuinely compliment you. Shared identity, the, the biggest one would be family, right? You literally share gene pool. And there are things that we'll do for family members, even those we may not like very much or extended family members that we might not ever do for a good friend, like maybe give a kidney or something like that. We're, we're genetically wired. And, and the principle tells us that, that when we help that other person because we share identity, it's almost like we're helping ourselves. Mm. So that's what makes it so powerful. Another example, my father served in the Marines. And I, I learned from a very young age that when dad met another Marine, it seemed like he was closer to them than me, his own flesh and blood. But once I understood this principle, I realized, wow, when my dad would help another Marine, it was as if he's helping himself. And when another Marine would help him, it was the same thing. It was almost as if he was helping himself. And so there's this deep bond where you're not really ever giving anything away because you're receiving so much as you are doing those acts of kindness, helpfulness, and, and things like that. So that's the principle of unity. It's not always available, but when it is, you know, uh, like my dad, if he met somebody and found out they were a Marine, he was going to be talking about it. And that was going to make everything easier from that point forward. Brian, this, this is, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show because I feel like our listeners um, certainly benefit from this. I know selfishly I do because it's a reinforcement that like thinking about sales and how I sort of at the beginning of this framed it as it could be a dirty word or persuasion even can be. But if it's you, if it's in the right hands and it's used in the right way, it is such an important tool mm -hmm. to develop and, and deepen connection with with relationships. Is there any any final parting thoughts of wisdom that you'd like to leave our audience and listeners with? Don't limit your use of what we talked about just in business. Think about how often throughout the day you are wanting somebody to do something. It could be your spouse to take out the trash. It could be your kids to do the homework. It could be going to the counter at a store and wanting to return something after the 30-day expiration period. All of those times where you're trying to influence somebody's behavior, the things that we've talked about, John, they come into play. And so I like to say it's a 24-7, 365 skill that will not only help you succeed at the office, but I think it'll generate a lot more happiness at home when people more willingly say yes to you. Goodness, that's that's so true. I, I got to tell you, I don't often uh, go in and re-listen um, to our episodes, but this is going to be one of the ones that I do that. I think there's just so much usefulness and important information that you shared uh, with us and with our listeners, Brian. So I really appreciate you doing that. Um, and I want to thank you for being on. One, one uh, final question before we let you go. Where can listeners find you? Uh, LinkedIn. So certainly reach out. I post a lot of stuff. If you don't tell me where you heard me, I will definitely reach back and say, how did you find me? I like to know why traffic comes my way. So there will be personal interaction with me when you reach out on LinkedIn. 
uh, my website, influencepeople.biz. Go out there, all the podcasts I've been on, videos I've created, uh, been blogging weekly for almost 15 years. There's just hundreds and hundreds of articles online and there are links to the books as well. Can I, can I ask in, in relation to, um, and I don't know if you're still doing them or not, this might've been during COVID, but some of the LinkedIn workshops and, and courses that you've done, are you still doing those? And what does that look like? Is it a conversation like this? Do you go, is it a deeper dive on this type of information? So the LinkedIn courses, uh, the ones that I created were pre-COVID. So I'd go out to California to a small town near Santa Barbara where LinkedIn has their learning headquarters. And I would be in a, a room with a green screen for a day or two and, and they're filming and, and they do high, high quality work. I mean, the, the courses that they put together, you're like, wow, that's magic. I mean, it's, it's great with the graphics and everything. And it's very suited to learners where most of the segments within maybe an hour course are only three to five minutes. Mm -hmm. So you may just say, I want to go in and learn this one thing. Well, you can find it and you can learn that or you can take the entire course. So I've done four different courses with them and I would love to do more. But it's just always a matter of, you know, there are all these people competing, trying to get uh, in those slots. And it's a matter of where they see influence and the need for that. So I haven't done any in a few years, but my goal is to do quite a bit more because I've loved the opportunity. Great. Well, we'll stay tuned for it. And I can attest to the fact that uh, on LinkedIn specifically, I mean, it is, you are, there's a human behind it. Brian is actually responding to you. You know, sometimes you reach out to people and you, you never get a response or you get kind of like a pre-canned message mm -hmm. um, and, you know, kind of filtering out messages. But, uh, you know, Brian, you, you and I went back and forth a lot on LinkedIn um, talking with each other. So I appreciate it. And uh, as always, thank you all, the listeners, for listening to Above Board with Canterpath. We love these conversations and we love our listeners. Uh, if you'd like more bite-sized chunks of these discussions, head over to canterpath365.com where you can listen to 30, 60, 90 second uh, clips and updates. Ones just like from the show. We'll, we'll snip it out and create clips from the show on your Amazon Alexa. So thank you all for listening. Brian, thank you for being on the show and we will see everyone next week. 